Welcome to the Kinky Cast, a sexually explicit podcast. If you are under 18 years of age, stop the podcast now. You are listening to a weekly publication, produced every Friday morning. The Kinky Cast is heard in over 150 countries. This week's episode is 244. In our weekly exploration in the kinky world of BDSM and alternative relationships, views expressed are not representative of the management of the Kinky Cast. We welcome guests with opposing viewpoints. Today, we present Race Bannon, gay rights icon. Don't forget to stop by our webpage for loads of information about this show and others. KinkyCast.com. Here's your hosts, Woody and the Beast. Thanks, Max, and welcome to another edition of the Kinky Cast. Sitting next to me again is the Beast. Hey, Woody, this is becoming a new tradition again. Or a habit. A habit. Uh, I like the tradition over habit. Yeah, yeah. Well, you well, you don't look good a in a done. habit. Yeah. Unless it's a done. Yeah, well, fine. Yeah, well, that's a, that's a, that, that may be a bad thing to do with So that. why the hell are you here again? Uh, because you booked in this great guest that on a Thursday, which is not our usual studio day at all. This guest just demanded, was so great that we need to adjust the schedule for him. Yes, he demanded it. Well, no, 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 no. His presence is demanding. That's that's it. Yes, because we're excited to welcome Ray Bannon to the cast tonight. Dare I say the legendary Ray Uh, Bannon? I think that's accurate. Hello, Mr. Bannon. Hello. Now now I'm not quite sure I can live up to all that. (laughs) The stage has been set. You got to, you know, take the stage now. <laughs> I, I will. I will be valiant in the effort. Race, you have been in the gay lifestyle in San Francisco for quite a number of years, and correct. That kind of goes back to the legendary thing because we've been hearing your name for as far back as I remember in the lifestyle. How did you come out and? Uh, how did you become the the force that you are? <laughs> uh, well, let's start with uh, me coming out gay and kinky, which was mostly simultaneous. Uh, I always knew I was likely gay, even though I didn't have a name for it. And I did a lot of kinky things, even in my youth, without really realizing that I was doing kinky things. So... It officially sort of began when I was 17 in Chicago and through a lot of oddball research, I figured out where to go. And the place to go at the time was a bar, a leather bar called the Gold Coast in Uh, Chicago. Which is another legend. It was a legend. It, it, It was one of the great leather bars of all time. And... I walked in there at 17 years of age, which, yes, was underage, but I always passed for a little bit older. Yay, facial hair. And um, I immediately knew I was home. It was, I believe, the second gay bar I ever walked into was the Gold Coast. And it felt like home. And I immediately knew it was for me. It felt right. It synced up with everything that I had fantasized about up to that point. And uh, that's how I got into both kink, leather at the time, we didn't really use the word kink very much, and was really the beginning of me openly acknowledging being gay at the same time. 
the Gold Coast definitely see Minichu has a leather band at that point. I mean, the bar is a legend for its uh, shenanigans, shall we say? <laughs> it was. It was uh, most, you know, back in the day, which uh, we're talking about 1972 right now. Uh, it was certainly one of the preeminent leather bars. It was really one of the first big leather bars of any sort. And it was owned by the renowned Chuck Renslow, no longer with us, but a famous name in, in, in leather and kink. And uh, it was the central socialization, meeting, cruising, a little bit playing because we kind of played back in the bars back then, a place in Chicago and the Midwest generally. It was a gathering place, and it drew people in from all over the country and, indeed, all over the world. It was it was that famous. Yeah, Chicago at that time was a beacon uh, for the leather culture. Um, it just didn't occur in places like Des Moines and, and even Cincinnati. It was uh, Chicago was a place to be. Chicago, New York, and San Francisco was about it. It's true. For the gay men's leather scene, I think Chuck Renslow was in many ways singularly responsible to some extent for uh, broadening the, the gay leather culture there at the time. Also, the Chicago Hellfire Club, which I believe was the first or second BDSM play club established. I may be incorrect in that, so do not quote me on that. But it was certainly one of the early... Uh, BDSM play clubs, and it was, of course, based in Chicago. And between the bars and the robust kind of gay culture generally, and a pretty good acceptance considering the time of BDSM and kink and leather, it certainly coalesced a lot of leather folk in a way that most other urban areas did not. How did you get from Chicago to San Francisco then? I lived in Chicago for quite a quite a long time. I'm born and raised there and came out there both gay and and kinky. And I was pretty much a rogue lone wolf player for many, many years. I did not embrace clubs, organizations, anything organized. We didn't have a lot of that, quite frankly, back then. Most players were rogue lone wolf players. There wasn't a lot of uh, organization around leather BDSM fetish. Uh, so I played and learned by observing and learned by socializing and learned by just being with other leathermen. And at that time, the gay men's, women's, and heterosexual, we didn't really have the word pansexual, communities back then didn't really mix a lot. They were vaguely aware of each other, but they socialized and played pretty much um, in compartmentalized communities. And I really lived a very sort of deep dive gay men's leather life, played a lot. We had a lot of sex clubs, play parties, bars. It was a very hypersexual time and the trappings around our kinky culture that are now pretty common were uh, weren't really around then. We didn't have conferences. We didn't have classes. We didn't have really publications. We didn't have any of that. We just did it. There was a handful of, of magazines that were just starting up at that point, but uh, it was very, very much word of mouth, wasn't it? 
It really was. If it wasn't word of mouth, it was an ad in the back of a magazine that was coded with a number. <laughs> you sent your letter with the coded number to a an address, and they forwarded it to the person with the other number. <laughs> it was very clandestine. Now, that was the, the publication kind of connection thing. Certainly, the in-person interactions that Gay Leatherman had back then were were very visceral, very in-your-face, very touch feel. <laughs> it was kind of two different worlds. And as a gay leatherman, certainly at that time, we had enough venues in which to meet and gather. And we did not need a lot of other communication mechanisms, quite frankly. So it was uh, it was a good time to be a leatherman. <laughs> it was indeed a, a golden time from what I understand. It was. It, it You know, at 64 years of age, I try not to be that old guy that go you know back in the day it was so much better because we i it was different it was absolutely a different experience i'm not going to say it was better or worse so when i hear golden era i might personally in some ways feel that way but i try not to uh in any way denigrate kind of what's going on now because i think in many ways it's just as good if not better as it was back then and um i really operated in that kind of lone wolf status Up until I moved to New York, which was in 1978, and spent a lot of time in New York. I was a dancer. That's why I moved to New York and uh, danced professionally for a number of years and frequent in the leather bars, the sex clubs, which in the late 70s were still going strong and really didn't do anything whatsoever organized until I moved to Los Angeles in 1980. The community in Los Angeles was it uh, becoming more organized at that point, or it was for a certain chunk of the Leather Kink uh, BDSM world. There was Society of Janus before that version of Society of Janus became Threshold, but that was very much a, a central linchpin organization around which many people gathered. There was a men's organization called Avatar, which still exists in Los Angeles, and I stumbled upon one of their educational. Once a month, they had classes, and they were one of the first organizations to decide that they were going to educate people about BDSM, certainly in that area. And they said, oh, we're going to throw a play party. Why don't you come? I said, okay. I didn't really do a lot of big play parties because we had sex clubs and play parties as gay men, so we didn't really go to those kinds of things. So I went, and I grabbed some guy that I had never seen before and began to play. And I turned around and there were about 35 people, 40 people watching the scene. (laughs) (laughs) And I, I know I was like, what, what, what? And anyway, I tried not to ignore all that. And then the scene's over and we're coming down and the aftercare and the whole thing you do. And somebody walked up to me and said, where did you learn to do all that? And I said, I just watched and did. I, no one really taught me per se. And they said, would you be interested in teaching a class? And that was the very first time I ever did anything publicly. Wow. So that would be 1980. Where was the play space then? They did it in in the same place they met. It was not an official play space. It was where their big classroom area that they, they taught. They could probably hold a good 100 people sitting. And it was in North Hollywood, but I can't remember exactly where. I'll be honest. Um, it's I don't believe it's their location anymore. I think they use a separate location now. So this was the right, the beginning of when the uh, education component that is so important to us today was beginning to uh, emerge. It, it did. I mean, there were certainly, um, if you look at uh, Oil and Spiegel Society, 
uh, Society of Janus. Those were probably the two big East and West Coast organizations that formed early on that had education as a, a key component of what they did. And then in uh, Los Angeles, for gay men, certainly, this was the first time an organization, to the best of my knowledge, had officially organized around the concept of educating people about BDSM and making that their primary mission. And uh, so, yeah, it was a very early on, the concept of BDSM classes was still a relatively new concept. Well, even the concept of classes for such a recreational activity was something that was unique for whatever it was. But the internet still hadn't reared its head yet, had it? No, no, it had not. We were still dealing with uh, certain gay men primarily use drummer magazine as a communication mechanism if it wasn't in person. Uh, there was a lot of, you know so-and-so, and they know so-and-so, and they'd like to play, and I think you two should meet, and there was a lot of that. Uh, there were a lot of house parties. There were a lot of, uh, certainly a lot of meetings around bars. Gay men primarily met around bars. And that was the place we socialized, cruised, decided that we were going to select A, B, and C as future play partners. <laughs> and um, it was it was the social clubhouse of Leatherman at the time, which is not quite the case today. I've always wondered, what was the alcohol involvement at that point you was meeting in bars but were was it uh was there alcohol fueling this or was the was that just the venue i don't think people drank any more than they do today frankly i never recall a single time seeing somebody super sloppy drunk at a place like the gold coast i'm sure it happened of course but don't really remember that there were certainly some drugs involved but no more than today, probably less so in some ways, and probably far more benign substances than, than some people consume today. So I don't really think that alcohol or substances of any kind was fueling it. It was a component, absolutely. Alcohol, marijuana, some other things were certainly there, but they were not the social lubricant that was required in order to make these guys do what they were doing. They were doing it because they, they wanted to do it. <laughs> so the word bar just happened to be in the title of the of the building. So much more was going on inside these, these spaces. Oh, absolutely. For example, the Gold Coast had a uh, leather shop in the basement. The basement was also famous for other things. <laughs> and, uh, Is that it was famous a time or when- infamous? It was infamous, yes. And, and back then, quite frankly, perhaps it was the underground nature of gay men's culture at the time. A lot of sex took place in bars, and a lot of play took place in those kinds of places that today, because of the greater public scrutiny, because things are so out and not so underground, simply doesn't really happen much today. It does in Europe. It's a very different scene in Europe. If you go to the men's bars Throughout Europe, leather bars, even mainstream gay bars, almost every one of them has a back sex room. Almost every one of them. I look at the Eagle in San Francisco and and places like that. There's lots of stuff that went on. There was. Um, Again, not so much today. It's, It's very much a social place, not a lot of play, certainly not a lot of sex of any kind. In any of the bars, in any of the major urban areas in the United States, Again, Europe is a very different animal. 
Well, the attitude in Europe towards sex is different than the United States, and the United States' attitude towards violence is different than the European uh, philosophy. So we have a, you know, we, we tolerate great violence in the United States and are shameful towards sex, and the Europeans kind of flip that opposite direction. It's true. The other thing that the Europeans do, certainly gay men's leather slash kink. I tend to use the two phrases interchangeably because we're kind of morphing from leather to kink, but we still use both. And anyway, so I tend to use both. But one thing that happens in much of Europe that is unlike North America is that they have not blended the communities in the same way North American kink culture has. For example, you walk up to the door of a typical leather bar in Berlin, and you're a woman, you probably are not getting in. Now, I'm saying this with a sweeping generalization because I know there are exceptions, but they tend to hold to what they call the pure erotic atmosphere in a way that North American culture doesn't. So we have opted for a more social environment. They err on the side of a more sexual environment, and it's simply the way it is. And part of the way they maintain that is by trying to um, sort of curate the audience in a way that you could never get away with legally, quite frankly, here. A good example is if I, as a gay man, walk up to certain leather bars or sex clubs in Berlin or some of Amsterdam, some of the other places, and I am not dressed adequately in a kink form that they deem suitable, I don't get in. I have seen that in Amsterdam, and I was almost turned away. I I was right at the very minimum to get in. I'd never experienced that before. Well, I I experienced it even not that – well, it was a while ago. I was at International Mr. Leather in Chicago. Uh, I walked into a bar that is no longer there, so I can name it, AAA Meat Market. And it was a leather bar that had a main room and then it had a back room. And in the back room, it wasn't really a sex room, but it was considered the real hardcore leather men would go there. And I was there – I believe it was the year I was judging IML. (laughs) I was actually judging that year and I was a pretty well-known entity. (laughs) And I walk up and they say, I'm sorry. I had checked my leather jacket. I had, I think, maybe a vest and jeans on and a shirt. And the only way they would allow a man in the back room that didn't have enough leather on is if they took their shirt off. That was it. And somebody said, and I don't mean to make this sound arrogant, but somebody literally turned to the doorman and said, do you know who this is? And they said, it doesn't matter. Wow. They made me take my shirt off. And I said to them, I have absolutely no problem with that. I kind of like that, frankly. I kind of like the curating of a, of a pure erotic space. I said, do not apologize. I get dress codes. I get why they happen. And I get the atmosphere you're trying to create. I took my shirt off and walked in. You mentioned, you touched on something rather, that the kink and leather were becoming more interchangeable. Do you think the leather culture is fading into uh, into this blend? One thing I know is that the only constant is change. So I have never been under the false impression that leather culture as we knew it would sustain. I always thought it was going to morph and change over time. And we have to remember that Contemporary leather culture as it looks today, meaning the way we dress, even using the word leather, heterosexual folks didn't use the word leather. (laughs) They just didn't. It was BDSM. It was fetish. It was whatever. Until the other communities outside of 
gay men and some hardcore lesbian leather women until other people were kind of exposed to that. The word leather was a, a, a foreign concept. Leather was what gay men did primarily and what a small subset of women did. But it wasn't what we identified as a community identifier across the orientations. It just wasn't. So if you went to an Eulenspiegel meeting in New York really early on, most of that audience would not have identified as leather. They were BDSM. They were fetish. But they were not really leather. There were some exceptions with people that crossed over. So the, the, the concept of leather is historically a relatively new thing, especially outside of the gay men's and to some extent some leather women's vernacular. It, it, it just wasn't used that much. And so once I believe the main turning point came about when the first Living in Leathers in the very early 90s were running. And that was the first time that an attempt was made to have a big event at which all the orientations mixed. And it was still primarily gay men and lesbians, but we had a good chunk of heterosexuals, bi, and other identities there. And that was, to the best of my knowledge, the first time that had ever really even been attempted. And I began to notice that all of a sudden leather, as an identifier, crept more into mainstream outside of just gay men and lesbians. The notion of this is always a hotly contested uh, discussion sometimes, always sometimes, about the uh, about the historic leather culture, the, uh, of the values of honor and tradition and so forth. Do you think those are modern constructs or do they date back to uh, a more older time frame? Most of them are modern constructs or modern reinterpretations of what was. For example, back in the 70s when you were in a leather bar, it was about sex and it was about having fun and it was about connecting with people and there was far less rigidity around roles. There was far less rigidity around how we referred to each other. Everybody was Bob, Jim, Jack. Nobody was Sir, Mr., Master, any of that. Nobody that I am aware of that I can recall ever back then used any kind of honorific. So that's actually a fairly new thing. Now, in a scene, that's different. You might be master or sir or whatever, or slave. or But in socially, they just weren't used. They just simply weren't used. Very, I can't recall anyone that used one. So things like that, the use of honorifics, the uh, codification of protocols and things like that, mostly embellishment of what happened in scenes or in very small, rarefied groups of men. A good example is the old guard. We talk about the old guard. Yes. I'm kind of with Guy Baldwin and some other people on this. I, I think there, there were smidgens of what we view as old guard having been that existed. World War II returners coming back, looking for camaraderie, bikers. And that's absolutely true. That, that that was the genesis of the gay men's leather scene, absolutely. But it wasn't nearly as codified as people imagine it having been. It was a bunch of guys who found each other and found some connection, and they solidified around a style of sexuality and a style of dress and a style of eroticism that that resonated and bonded them in some way. But there were not a lot of rules and protocols and things like that that people imagined there were. There just weren't. I'd like to segue here a bit because you got a project on the burner, don't you? Yeah, I do. I'll keep it short how it came about. Every year there is something called World AIDS Day. 
And there is a an institution here in San Francisco called the AIDS Memorial Grove, which is the national memorial to um, the AIDS epidemic and everything that sort of surrounds that. And it, it's in Golden Gate Park in San Francisco. So once a year, they have a big event. It's big. I mean, this year, Bill Clinton spoke at it. So it's big. It's it's not a little event. And they decided a couple of years ago, I think it is now, in addition to a few of the awards they gave out, to give a community award to not just a person, but to a community, to an identifiable community of people. And they decided that the very first of these awards would go to the San Francisco leather community as having been on the cutting edge of addressing the HIV crisis at the time. And they gave it. So they brought in some filmmakers, a couple very well known. The director was uh has a couple of Emmys. What the um, one of the producers uh, has is Oscar nominated for one of his documentaries. Some pretty heavy hitters, and they filmed about twenty five of us telling our stories. And they were so impressed with the community of which they are not a part that they said, "There's more to say here." So we'd like to do a documentary project of some sort. And uh, long story short, this has morphed into something that is is called Divine Deviance. If anyone wants to find out about it, you go to divinedeviance.com and our promotional trailer is there and some information, et cetera, so anybody can can view it. And um, we are actually in three weeks finally filming um, the first footage for this documentary project. Wow. And any direction that this is going or any spoilers that you might share? No, it's, it's kind of all out there with the direction we're going. The hope is to capture documenting the leather kink BDSM fetish. We actually don't use the word leather. And the reason we don't use the word leather is that when we did our market research, if you will, and we asked in Australia, Europe, um, Japan, et cetera, when we say leather, what does that mean? They said that means it comes off of a cow. That's all that, that's <laughs> with very, very rarely, except in maybe some gay male European pockets. Nobody related to the word leather, so we decided on using kink, BDSM, and fetish as the identifier. So the hope is that this will capture the um, the scene from around the world. With that said, it is likely to be primarily North American and European-centric because that's where a lot of our culture has thrived. But we do hope to touch on South Africa, Australia, Japan, and other parts of the world. And our first film is going to be on the history of kink. And we are bringing in, uh, in three weeks, an esteemed panel from across the country. And they are, in some cases, academics, most cases academics, but certainly scholars around kink history. And we're going to film this panel with a full four-camera setup and director and crew and the whole thing. And uh, that's going to form the foundation of the first film, which is on the history of kink. And is this... Kink, multisexual or gay or what? It's across the board. No, it is it is every orientation, every gender identity, every type of kink that falls within the parameters of what we see as kink BDSM fetish. Uh, there are kinks that kind of fall outside of what we typically in our BDSM leather fetish culture see as kinky. But um, it's anything that falls within that realm, any orientation, any gender, it is... Uh, all inclusive. In fact, that is the objective. It is not specific to gay, heterosexual in any way. 
Well, I'm, I'm, I'm excited to see this project move forward because from a personal standpoint, I think we have a lack of appreciation for the uh, heritage of the community and even a knowledge of what the accurate is the heritage uh, with any kind of accuracy. So it's going to be great to have some people coming together to put this down. And it's going to be interesting. I myself, having done a little bit of um, precursor research since we're working on this project, you can only go so far back typically into documented kink because so much wasn't written down, so much was lost, so much was was passed person to person. It really didn't it didn't exist in, in, in historical ephemera and things like that. So you can go back to Europe in 1400s, 1500s, and you can begin to trace. But prior to that, it's difficult. Yet there is still some early on indications of actual kink sexuality being practiced and celebrated, etc. But it's it's a relatively recent history. So even I am going to be a little fascinated as I listen to this panel of esteemed experts tell me things that I probably will be surprised about. Well, so much of this was a shameful history for families when someone would pass on and their documents and the family did not respect those documents for what they were because they were shameful history in many cases. Absolutely. Even to this day, we have just in, in let's say, the pick out just the gay men's community or LGBT generally, we have instances where families have thrown out very well-known people in that LGBTQ movement. They've thrown out the stuff because the family found it, tossed it, and the truth is that should all be sitting in a museum somewhere. But a lot of it was lost for the exact reason you said. And I have absolutely zero doubt that a tremendous amount of kink historical materials are gone because they were tossed because of the shame around it. It wasn't the day of the Internet where everything is permanent. No, it's true. No, it's it's a very different world. You you, you talk to historians who try to capture this in some sort of hard format, paper, film, photographs, et cetera. And uh, it's a very different world. And, and capturing that and documenting it and preserving it is, is a big deal. Unfortunately, it also takes a lot of money. And um, it is, uh, ask anyone who works in a museum and what the archival process is to do something correctly. And it takes a lot of money to do that. And we don't really have the means to do it entirely properly, although we're trying. Well, the uh, Leather Museum and Archives, their backlog is huge in what they need to process and so forth. So, It's true. Yeah, they, um, they're doing their darndest because they are short-staffed because there's only so much money and time. And I, I can't remember. I, I know that the Leather Archives and Museum has, I believe, at least one full-time archivist on staff, and which is a very unique skill set. Um, to be an archivist, and uh, it takes a lot of money to pay those people and to do those things properly. And it's you're right, that backlog is probably going to sustain for a while. Well, there's not a lot of philanthropists that want to come out and give money to alternative sexuality. Believe me, that is something I have learned trying to raise money for this documentary. We originally working with you know Hollywood, you know big Hollywood documentary type filmmakers who are used to fairly decent sized budgets. 
and they, oh, we're going to raise X number of dollars. And the reality was that that's a real challenge. Well, you know, ask anyone in the kink BDSM fetish world that when they try to raise money for something, how difficult it is. We know that for five years now. (laughs) (laughs) If only Jeff Bezos would come out as a kinkster. And admit it. Yeah. Uh Yeah. He's he's, he's looking for something to do with that fortune, right? It's not like we're not willing to spend money on our kink. We do it all the time. Uh, I'll give but one example. In San Francisco, we were trying to um, brainstorm the concept of a kink community center. And we calculated we need X number of dollars to create the beginning of it, et cetera, where we had a, a building that we could rent or buy and, and, and build out and actually create a kink community center. We, and remember, real estate in San Francisco is extremely expensive. Mm. And somebody made the comment. They said, you know, if just every gay man in San Francisco who goes to International Mr. Leather every year in Chicago took the exact same amount of money they spent for those four days and contributed it to the community center, we'd have one tomorrow. Yes. People are willing to spend money on certain things, but for some reason, they are not necessarily willing to cough up money for community shared resources. And I'm not quite sure why that's the case, but it does seem to be. Well, I think it is, in my personal opinion, is we are geared for fun and archivy and museums and all that sounds very academic. And mm-hmm. that is not high on our priority list in the United States. But even in pla- even if you think play spaces, how challenging it is to keep play spaces open. Oh, yes, we've seen that. Yeah. And that's essentially pure fun. That's the whole point of it. We play because we want to have fun. So even, and I don't care what city it's in, almost every city is challenged keeping play spaces open. And um, so I'm, I'm not quite sure what, what mental gymnastics people go through when they decide where to put their money. But I really hope they would contribute more to keep play spaces open, um, keep venues open where we can meet, gather, play. Because one of the things that uh, Gail Rubin, famous leather historian, um uh, one of the things she talks about is one of the greatest challenges, certainly here in San Francisco, where, where she is often based, is, is real estate. It's simply difficult to find spaces to gather that we can afford. And I think that's going to be the case across the board in most urban, urban centers of the United States. Uh, real, real estate's just skyrocketing at a ridiculous rate that it's unsustainable growth, but it is what it is at the moment. Yep. <laughs> What's in the future for you, Mr. Bannon? When I say Mr. Bannon, I always go to Steve Bannon. <laughs> don't, don't go there. I'm sorry. <laughs> Believe me, I, when he was a little bit more in the news than he is today, that was I would hear people snicker all the time when they heard my last name and they didn't know me. What is in the future? Uh, I am obviously working on this documentary project. Uh, I continue to be the leather columnist for the Bay Area Reporter here in San Francisco, which is the longest-running continual LGBTQ publication in the world, I believe. Wow. I have a biweekly column that I still do for them. I I think I'm going into my fourth or fifth year doing that. I'm not on the organizing body now, but was very involved in the forming of the very first leather and LGBTQ cultural district here in San Francisco, where we are an actual cultural district with with documentation signed by the mayor that says this is a part of the city that will forever 
be considered a home to the leather and LGBTQ um, communities. And that was a big deal. Don't um, you wish other cities would do that? I sure do. It, that is so amazing. It would be amazing to have a historic marker in front of the location of the Gold Coast. What's happening right now is uh, we did something recently in San Francisco. I say we. I was barely involved. My name's on it somewhere. But uh, it was really driven primarily by Gail Rubin and her passion around um, this project. We have a place called Ringo Alley. It's literally an alley between 8th and 9th Street in, in San Francisco in south of Market District in the Leather area. And there is now a walk where you have a big monument marker that talks about the, the history of leather in South of Market in San Francisco. And as you walk the block down that alley, you will see bronze boot prints with the names of well-known people from San Francisco. You will see monuments with um, clubs, organizations, bars, bathhouses, sex clubs, you name it, as you walk down. And it kind of is a walking history of leather San Francisco as you walk down this block and it's one of many projects. It's one of the big ones we just recently did, and it is complete. Anyone who visits San Francisco can can see it. It's Ringgold Alley, south of Market Area of San Francisco. How cool is that? Yeah, wow. it's yeah. A, it's amazing. A city's embracing what so many cities see as their city uh, past that they want to forget that uh, San Francisco is embracing it. Yeah, it's it's fascinating that. Uh, one of the things about San Francisco is that as a, a fairly high-profile Leather King person, uh, I'm in City Hall as much as other people are often, and I'm being consulted. And not just me, but other people that are movers and shakers within our community are being consulted directly by our lawmakers and our elected officials as to what do you as your community need. And uh, that's a pretty remarkable thing. We are right now – uh, I say we, I, I am only tangentially, I say the, the, the collective we of San Francisco and some hardworking people doing it. Outside of the Eagle Bar, they're, in January, they begin the construction of the Eagle Plaza. And it will be the very first, to the best of our knowledge, outdoor plaza that's city-sanctioned, where it is specifically meant to be a home to memorialize and to honor and to uh provide a physical space of gathering for the leather and king communities. And there'll be a leather flag will fly there 24-7, 365. Community has figured out ways to have it cared for in perpetuity in terms of maintenance ongoing. Uh, the city has blessed it. It will have the ability to be closed off and have this uh, half block area right outside the Eagle being used for parties, community spaces, events, you name it. Again, it's, it's, testimony to how much the city understands that the Leather and King communities are an integral part of the community, just like every other aspect. What's really amazing in San Francisco, coming down uh, the hill from Twin Peaks and seeing the big pride flag flying over the Castro gives you a real sense of what's going on in that neighborhood. That is one of the great prides of the late Gilbert Baker, who created the gay pride flag. I live right near Cleve Jones, who was Gilbert one of the most famous LGBT activists in the world, and who was Gilbert's best friend. And I know that Gilbert realized that when he could see his flag, I say his flag because he created it, um, flying every day, and not only is it, does it fly, but every time it's worn and torn, the community has a mechanism by which they replace that flag. And it does act as kind of a beacon. People, I 
was there was a guy I, I want to say he was from Croatia. He was in that from that neck of the woods, and he was standing near the base of it, and he was crying. And I said, "What? What? What? Are you okay?" And he goes, "You have no idea what somebody who comes from another part of the world where I'm not so accepted, and here I am standing beneath. I'm tearing up a little. Um, I'm standing beneath a flag that." is openly flown by the city and by a neighborhood and everyone's embracing it and cheering it because you have no idea what that means. Um, yeah, it's a big deal. It's a very big deal. It really is. And, you know, I, I'm tearing up a little bit too because San Francisco is my home. I was born and raised there. And oh. I watched the metamorphosis of the Tenderloin District and, and all these things that, that shifted around uh, over the time and then established uh, the uh, Noe Valley and, and uh, Folsom Street and the Castro and all these things are so uh, important to the communities and people gathering together and, and opening community spaces. You know, the women's building uh, there in Noe Valley is such an important part of uh, the lesbian scene there. Absolutely. It's, uh, I don't want to pretend that San Francisco was always that way. It certainly wasn't. It, you know, back in, you know, not that long ago, police were still raiding gay bars and it was still difficult to be LGBT of any sort. Uh, it's a, it's only the last few decades where that's really sort of turned around and we've become this kind of beacon. And, uh, I think we're not just a beacon for LGBTQ, but we're also a beacon for anyone who's different, be that leather and kink or different gender expressions, uh, whatever it might be, I think that we are kind of this crazy, wacky city that seems to accept a lot of people, and that's one of the things we take great pride in. Well, you know, there, that goes pretty far because I was raised as a kid in San Francisco. I was raised with a tolerance to different types of people, and I knew about people that were sexually different than me when I was a child, and we had family friends that were. And so it was not a big thing for acceptance of a gay lifestyle to me because I was raised around it. Now, you go to other parts of the country where it is not as obvious as it is in San Francisco, and it's a further jump for people. It is. I, I travel a lot, and I am always reminded quite quickly that I live somewhere that not only do they accept LGBT people, but just the range of diversity generally. I was sitting in a city that I will not name, and um, I, I said to the person at the table, "Can you can you sense the racism? You can feel the racism in the air." I mean, I, I don't, I won't go into specifics, but it was palpable. I mean, it was actually I could feel it, and it's something we don't even think about here. Same thing with equality of women, LGBT, you, people of color. It's just the kind of city where we're by no means perfect. We have our problems, but in general. We tend to accept people for who they are, and uh, it's one of the things I love about it. California generally, even even Los Angeles is kind of that way. Well, on that note, I want to thank you for uh, joining us tonight. Race, you are a legend in the gay lifestyle, and you certainly do carry the flag well. And we want to hear from you more on what's going on and, and things, especially when the documentary comes out. Thank you very much, and uh, you will be hearing about that and a lot more from me in the future. Sounds great. Have a great evening. Thank you. You too. You have been listening to episode 244 
of the Kinky Cast. For more information about this show, go to kinkycast.com. The Kinky Cast is a production of Rooster in the Round. On behalf of all our Kinky crew, I'm Max. Join us next week when we present Angel Knight, Pain Star. Mm-hmm.